Ephesians chapter 5 today. If you have your Bible, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 5. Pull the notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along or fire up our Journey Church International app so that you can follow along with us today. And we are in the final message of this series that we're calling Better Together that I have to be honest with you has really been surprising to me and how much it's impacted me as a Christian. I did not necessarily want to do this series, wasn't tremendously excited about it as a pastor. I know there are almost as many people in our church who aren't married as are married. So anytime, you know, I take a few weeks and preach on marriage, I feel like I might be isolating a lot of people in our church. And if you felt that way, I'm sorry. Um, But we said this year specifically, we're going to look at a text which talks about marriage, but isn't about marriage. Because Ephesians chapter 5 is written from the perspective of your relationship with Jesus. The assumed in Ephesians chapter 5 is that if you have a healthy relationship with Jesus, you will have a great relationship with your spouse. But in looking at that relationship with Jesus as a Christian, not just as a husband, as a Christian, I've been challenged because I look at what Paul says is normal for our relationship with Jesus, and it's deeper than my faith is. It's more committed than my faith was. It's more submissive. It's more trusting. It serves God more. It sacrifices more for God. And it's more motivated than my current love for Jesus was when I began to study. In looking at Ephesians chapter 5 to learn marriage, I found Jesus at a level deeper than I had ever found Jesus. Because what Paul assumes normal faith is, um, was a lot deeper than my faith was. So then to take that faith and turn and apply it to my wife, to take that love and turn and apply it to my wife, um, I realize I have a long, long way to go as a Christian husband. This series has been massively eye-opening and challenging for me. So I'm looking forward one more time to reading through Ephesians chapter 5 and teaching you. And I believe today's message is by far the best in the series. Now, before we hit that, let me tell you what's coming up next week. So we have just entered a season in the spiritual calendar called Lent. Lent is a period of 40 days. Um, If you're Catholic, 46 days that stretches back from Easter Sunday. Some stretch back from the Passover. It started on March 1st this year. And it's a season of time spiritually where people just get focused um, as Easter is coming. Uh, It's a season where a lot of people fast from certain things. It's a season where a lot of people make a 40-day commitment to do certain things. It's a season, um, you know, where a, a lot of Catholics will gather every Friday um, to celebrate at their fish rites. Just a season where, where we're just more spiritually aware. And in this season, we're going to start a series next week called Famous Last Words. We will look at the last seven hours of Jesus' life that were spent on a cross. And you're going to realize that Jesus made seven statements in the last seven hours of his life as he hung on a cross. The next seven weeks, starting next week and moving into Easter, we will look at the things Jesus said from the cross, and you're going to find out, like I did, um, that you'll be amazed at what Jesus wanted you to know from the cross, his famous last words that are really important for every Christian. So tune in. Most of this series, you'll have four chances every Sunday to be here, three Sunday services, Sunday night service, which means you have four opportunities to stream live. Um, And if you can't be here for any of those eight, uh, catch it during the week. But tune in to hear what Jesus wanted you to hear from the cross. That starts next week. Today, we're in Ephesians 5 one more time. Uh, And as we jump into verse 21, hopefully you've seen the last few weeks, if you've been here, that you and Jesus are better together. And hopefully you've seen that you and your spouse are better together if you're married. So Ephesians chapter 5, from here to our overflow room and those streaming, here we go. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We talked about what that meant last week. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their own body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You know, today I need to talk to those of you who are husbands in the room. And I need to teach you what Paul is trying to teach you from the love of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 5. But really, this truth applies to every Christian in the room. So if you're in here today and you're a Christian, I've got some unbelievable spiritual truth that I'm going to give you today. And if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, first, thanks for being with us. We want you to know you're welcome every Sunday. We'd love for you to come learn about Christianity from here. But I hope as you learn today, you'll think of a Christian friend in your life and you'll think, do they live the way the Bible says they're supposed to live. And do your own kind of study on Christianity today because today is all about learning something that I've got to be honest with you that I've never even thought about. In nearly 20 years of getting up every week and preaching, I've never thought about what I learned through this message. In getting a Bible college degree and two seminary degrees, I never learned about uh, or even thought about what I learned this week is I kind of opened the words and I began to understand What Ephesians chapter 5 was saying to us, I thought, this is going to allow me to see my faith in a whole new way. I've never even thought to live this way, but it is powerful. And it starts with Paul's admonition to husbands in verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Let's go there and look at it real quick. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then in verses 26, 27, and 28, Paul tells us how to do that. Now, if you ever go to Bible college or you take some online Bible classes, one of the classes that you'll take if if you want to get a degree in Bible is a class called inductive Bible study. It teaches you how to read the Bible and get stuff out of it. And basically, I'll give you the cheat sheet. The whole class is learning how to make lists. Like that's all it is. When the Bible makes a statement, what points come after it so you can make a list? So when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, say, how do we do that? Just make a list. What follows? So what follows are what a husband does and what a husband produces. These are just the list that Paul gives us. And I want to show them to you because one is really, really good and one confused me a little bit. So, you know, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, so how do we do that? Paul says a husband does that by loving their wives, giving up their life for their wife, putting her first, making her holy. That word holy means separated or separated unto something, cleansing your wife spiritually and presenting her to God. I look at that husband does listen. I, I, I get that. Spiritually, I get that. I need to love my wife. I need to give up my life for my wife. She needs to come first. I need to make her holy. I need to work hard to keep separating our family to God. I need to cleanse my wife spiritually. I need to work to keep sin out of our house and out of our relationship, present her to God, keep giving her. To, like I get those things. But then I went over to this list of what a husband produces and I struggled with it. It says a husband will produce a holy wife, which means separated to God. A radiant wife, which means spectacular before God. A a wife without stain, wrinkle, or blemish spiritually. A blameless wife 
the glorified version of their wife or the, the, the spiritual best of their wife. And I looked at, that, at what a husband produces. I looked at that list and I thought, that's not right. I mean, from, from what I understand, those things not only aren't a husband's job, like they can't be a husband's job. Like a husband cannot produce those things in their wife. You say, how do you know that? Because the whole New Testament says that's Jesus' job description. Like everything in the New Testament says that's what Jesus does for humanity. He separates us to God. He makes us spectacular before God. He allows our life to be seen without stain, wrinkle, or blemish. He presents us to God blameless. He allows God to see the best spiritual glorified version of who we are. Like I looked at that list and thought, that's not fair that God would ask a husband to do what only Jesus can do according to the Bible. And God said, you've got it. Now you've got it. This is the mystery of marriage. I actually am asking a husband to do what only Jesus can do. But Christian, what does that have to mean? I said, well, God, that has to mean then that the spiritual role of a husband is basically to serve as a personal assistant to Jesus in the life of his wife. Like that's what it's got to mean, right? It can't mean anything less than that. If only Jesus can do that, but God is telling husbands, it's your role to do that. What God is saying is help Jesus uncover the spiritual best in your wife. It cannot mean anything less than that. And let me speak to those of you in the room who are not married yet. Let me speak to those of you who are single or maybe those of you who are divorced. This point that I just made means we need to be careful who we marry. It actually means we need to be careful how we view marriage if you are married. Because there's two types of spiritual personal assistance in the world, right? There's the devil's advocate. And some of you are really good at playing that. The devil's advocate is someone who will see your worst. Someone who will remind you of your past. Someone who will keep you from reaching your potential. And some of you are single. You're dating someone that's kind of like a spiritual advocate, a, a devil's advocate to you spiritually. Be careful. Some of you are divorced because you were married to a devil's advocate. And all they ever saw was your worst. All they ever do was hold your past over your head. All they ever did was held you back from reaching who God wanted you to be. And it, and it just didn't work. And some of you are married right now and you're looking thinking, my spouse might be a devil's advocate. Some of you are reading this right now thinking, I might be a devil's advocate to my spouse. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, we need to be Jesus' advocate. We need to be someone who will see your best. We need to be someone who will identify your spiritual potential. We need to be somebody who will celebrate when you make spiritual progress and who will cultivate your spiritual best. Paul says husbands should be Jesus' advocate in the lives of their wives. And if we just take this another step forward, he's saying Christians should be the Jesus' advocate in the lives of anyone they have relationships with in their life. And let me give you a warning. If you're in here today and you're single or you're dating and you have attached your heart emotionally to someone whose heart is not attached to Jesus spiritually, they cannot be his advocate in your life. And it's going to be hard for you to experience Christian marriage married to someone who does not want to help Jesus bring out the best in you. Slow down, process, and think about those things. Here's some questions to ask. Even if you're married, which one am I? My devil's advocate or my Jesus advocate? In my marriage, in my job, with my kids, with my neighbors, on social media, my Jesus advocate or am I the devil's advocate to everyone because it's just more fun? 
Ask yourself the question, who am I married to? It's not so fun when you're married to one of them, right? Who am I married to? Am I married to a devil's advocate or am I married to Jesus' advocate? Am I married to someone who saw my worst all week or someone who saw my best all week? And if you're not married, you have to ask yourself, which one of these do I want to marry? Boy, when it's laid out this black and white, it's pretty easy who you want to marry. But are you currently pursuing that type of person with your heart? See, I feel like Christians who are single, we need to quit looking at people with our eyes and we got to start looking with our hearts. Because Proverbs 31 says, charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting, everything your eyes see will go away. But that heart that's connected to Jesus that wants to bring Jesus best out in you, you can trust that person. We look different and we find different. You know, when we read through this, we find out that husbands, if you're in here and you're married, your role is not to provide a life for your wife and your family. Your role is to breathe life into their spirits and into their spiritual purpose. Like so many of us think that our job description is to provide a life, a home over their head, a car for them to drive, food in the house. You know, I'm doing my job as a husband if I provide a life for my family. That's not what Ephesians 5 says. Your, your role is not just to provide a life. It's to breathe life into your family. I read this quote at our marriage retreat several weeks ago. But Tim Keller, the author of The Meaning of Marriage, says there are too many guys who turn marriage into a job description. He does his responsibility, she does hers, and there's no emotional connection whatsoever. This is a sin of omission. I didn't hit her. I didn't yell at her. But you didn't love her. You didn't connect with her. You didn't encourage her. You didn't pursue her. So ultimately, you failed her. Not only do women initiate most divorces, they do so because they've lost hope that their emotionally absent husbands will ever change, so they walk away forever. And maybe you're in a marriage like that, or maybe you never want to be in a marriage like that, so you want to learn how to become Jesus' advocate. That's what today's Bible study time is about. How do I become Jesus' advocate? Listen, husbands, as I teach you, I want you to think about your wives. Wives, if I, as I teach this, I want you to think about your husbands. If you're in here and you're single, I want you to think of a person right now. Don't listen theoretically. Think of a person that you're in relationship with, someone at work, a neighbor, somebody on your kid's sports team, somebody you go to college with, somebody you go to high school with if you're a high school kid. If you're not married, think of a person, a real person. Write their initials or their name down on your sermon notes. I'm going to become this person's advocate spiritually. Who is it? How do we become Jesus' advocate to somebody? Three things they kind of blew my mind as I understood the text of Ephesians 5 this week of how I'm supposed to live as a Christian and as a Christian husband. How do I become Jesus' advocate? Three things. Number one, you've got to learn to see the spiritual potential in your wife, in your husband, in your spouse. You've got to learn to see the spiritual potential in this friend that you're thinking about right now. We begin to be Jesus' advocate when we see the spiritual potential in our spouse. Now, this is hard. You say, why is this so hard? Because marriage doesn't create our weaknesses, but it reveals them more clearly than they've ever been seen. Like marriage doesn't create the things in you that are bad and that are ugly, but it puts a magnifying glass on them so you see them quickly. Danielle and I, about seven years ago, moved over to Lee Summit to begin the process of, of meeting with families to, to start this church. And we bought a house that was foreclosed. We, we knew we needed to move into something that we could afford on a very meager, kind of raising our salary for a few years. So when we bought a foreclosed house, it didn't have an official inspection. And the bank said, like, it's as is. Like, we think it's good, but it's as is. We had some people come over and look at some stuff and say, yeah, it looks pretty good. I, I think you'll be all right. So we bought it as is. First time it rained. Hard. 
I remember our kids coming downstairs and they're like, it's raining in the basement. Now, our basement is not set up to have rain in it, maybe like yours. We have a storage unit that we went downstairs and, I mean, water was pouring down the wall of our storage unit. It would have made a beautiful fountain feature. Like, there was that much coming down the wall. If we'd have put some rocks and stuff in it and made a little thing at the bottom, it would have been wonderful. We could have sold the house for more money. But that wasn't supposed to be happening. So after we figured out how to you know, clean up all the water and throw away the stuff that was ruined and move the boxes and rebox some stuff, we called a guy over and said, what, you know, what, what happened? Um, and he said, man, you, like, you've got some pretty serious cracks in your foundation. And we said, did the storm cause those? He said, oh, no, those were there, but it took the storm for you to see them. You know what, the mar- you know what marriage is? It's a storm. Marriage is a storm that allows you to see all the cracks and fractures in the character and the personality of the person you married. I can't tell you how many times over the last 20 years I've sat in marriage counseling and I've had someone say, if I would have known he was this way, if I would have known she was that way, I wouldn't have married her. Like if I'd have known all these cracks existed, I would not have agreed to that purchase. And now I see the worst of them. What am I supposed to do? Well, you know, Jesus is the exact opposite of that thought. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that Jesus saw our worst and decided to love us anyway. So Paul says, listen, in your marriage, the mystery of marriage is that you're going to have to love like Jesus, which means you're going to see your spouse at their very worst. And you get to choose to love them anyway by seeing their spiritual potential. See, Jesus saw our worst, but he loved us anyway because he saw the potential for our best. So if we're married, husbands, wives, if you're in a relationship with that person whose initials are written on your notes, we need to learn to see the negative aspects of our spouse as dross and see the good aspects as silver. So did you just say dross? Do you mean drones? Like, is that a word people... I don't think I've used that word in 2017. As a matter of fact, I've not used that in the 21st century. Yeah, I said dross, D-R-O-S-S, not a word that people use often, except my mom texted me between services and said, I used that word in Scrabble last week. It's like, okay, thank you, mother, but you're in your 60s. So, you know, maybe, (laughs) maybe if you do crossword puzzles, you've used this word, but for the rest of us, probably not. But I want you to remember this word because it's an important word for this concept. Proverbs 25, 4 says, remove the dross from silver and a silversmith can produce a vessel. You know what dross is? It's the garbage around a very valuable material that keeps you from seeing how valuable something is. That's what dross is. It's removing the garbage from around the edges of something valuable underneath so that everyone can see the value. What's valuable about your spouse? I wish I could sit in our small groups this week because one of our small groups question is we're asking husbands and wives to talk about the thing they see most spiritually valuable in their spouse. What do you identify as something spiritually valuable in your spouse? I wish I could sit around and hear those answers. And all you husbands, you're welcome for that head start on that question so that you don't have to think of it on the spot. Don't say she's a good cook. That's not going to be good for you in your marriage. We're going to end up in marriage counseling together. So there's your head start, finding that spiritual value, removing the garbage. I read a story a few months ago about a guy who bought a farm in France. And when he got the farm, it found out it, it had all these um, abandoned kind of classic cars out under some rusted kind of lean-tos that this guy had put up. In the 1950s, a French entrepreneur started collecting classic cars. 
he had kind of hobby of fixing them up. He bought more than 50, and he got sick, um, and he couldn't really work on them, and he died. He left them to his kids who cared nothing about them. They forgot they were there. They thought they were all rusted out. So when his kids died, his grandson sold the farm and said, you can just have everything on it. So they, they found the farm, and they found all these cars, and among the 50 cars was a Ferrari 250 GT SWB California Spider. One of only 36 cars like this ever made. And they decided to uncover it and take it to auction. And a few months later, it sold for $23.5 million at auction. Buried among a heap of garbage on a farm somewhere in the middle of France. But someone saw the value. You know, I'm not sure how much garbage is on top of your spouse's spiritual potential, but it's in there. It might take some elbow grease. You might might have to rub off some rust. You may have to replace a few parts. But I promise you, if you can learn to see the spiritual potential in your spouse, you can become like Jesus is for you. Secondly, once we see that, we've got to learn to celebrate the spiritual progress of our wife, of our husband, of that person you're thinking about. We've got to learn to celebrate the spiritual progress that we see. And we have to remember that when it comes to being like Jesus, Jesus advocates have to learn to praise progress, not just perfection. Man, we are good at seeing how far we fall short. We often don't celebrate how far we've come, though. And as Christians, we have to learn to celebrate spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. This is what Jesus did in his famous quote to his three closest friends in Matthew 26, 41. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had asked them to pray. They kept falling asleep. And Jesus said to them, watch and pray so you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In chastising them, he also praised progress. He said, listen, I know you're struggling with this, but I believe in your spirit. I know your spirit is strong. I know your flesh is weak, but I know your spirit is strong. He praised progress. It wasn't perfect, but they were getting there. He saw in their spirit a willing spirit. He said, I'm going to praise that because you're headed in the right direction there. And when it comes to celebrating the spiritual progress of your wife and spouse, listen, you have to do this consciously and you have to do this verbally. Say, what do you mean by consciously and verbally? If you don't consciously think about finding good things in people, you won't. And if you don't speak what you see, they won't know what you see in them. So we have to make a conscious effort to find the Jesus in people, to find the spiritual potential in people, and then we've got to speak about that. I came home from Atlanta last weekend. I was speaking at a youth ministry conference with a former youth ministry student of mine who's now a youth pastor. And when I was traveling back home from Atlanta, there were signs all over the airport that that I've seen more and more traveling since the Boston Marathon that basically said this, see something, say something. If you see something, say something. America's got to police itself. If you see something, say something. It's the same concept when it comes to celebrating spiritual progress. If you see something, say something. If you see one little good thing, if you see something, say something to celebrate spiritual progress. And at the exact same time, you're going to have to fight this subconsciously and internally. You say, what does that mean? Your subconscious will pick up everything that they do wrong. It's just how we're trained. You got to learn how to keep that on the inside. Remember the old saying, if you can't say anything good, don't don't say anything at all, right? Like I'm going to subconsciously, I'm going to realize I always pick up the bad So I'm just going to learn how to internalize that and just kind of keep that down so that I can celebrate 
who they are becoming. Listen, don't you want people like this in your life? Like, don't all of us want people like this in our life? This doesn't just apply to our spouse. This applies to everyone at our work, our kids, our neighbors. My gosh, those of you who umpire kids baseball, don't you wish you had a few people like this who would just internalize stuff in their head? Like, that's a bad call. But this guy's making $30 this game. I'll just, you know, I'll choose to sit this one. Like, we want people like this in our life. Let's become people like this for our wife, for our husbands, for our friends. You see, if you're around people, you're going to see their sin. But you can choose to celebrate their. Uh, you can choose to celebrate their spirit. You're going to see their sin, but you can choose to celebrate their spirit. It's finding the silver lining within a ball of draws. It may sound like, listen, every time you act like an idiot, you always come back and apologize. You know, I'm so proud of that spirit in you. Just when I thought you couldn't be any dumber, you go and totally redeem yourself. Like there's a way, right, to just begin to work in. The silver lining, you're welcome, those of you who grew up in the 90s. Um, you got to begin to just kind of see the silver lining in the ball of dross. Why? Because this is how Jesus loves us. This is how Jesus sees us. Look at Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Paul said, who's the person who sees all of our spiritual worst? Well, that's Jesus. And who's the one condemning us for that? Paul says, well, that's no one. Because Jesus, even though he sees the spiritual worst, is interceding on our spiritual behalf to his father. He's celebrating the spiritual progress in our life. The very one who sees the worst is the one praising the best. That should be you in your marriage. That should be you in your parenting. That should be all of us as Christians in the world that we live in who want to have positive spiritual influence. We see people's spiritual potential. We celebrate people's spiritual progress. And if we do those two things, number three, we're going to cultivate their spiritual best. If we will see spiritual potential, if we will celebrate spiritual progress, we're going to begin to cultivate the spiritual best in our wife, in our spouse, in our friends. And, you know, I was trying to figure out in this section, do I teach people how to cultivate the spiritual best? And God said, no, everyone knows how to cultivate something they care about. You don't have to teach people about cultivating things. You see, every person works to cultivate the things that are most important to them. We don't have a problem with cultivating things we care about. We have a problem with caring about the wrong things as the priority loves of our life. You know, nearly 20 years of ministry when I do counseling with couples, whether it be counseling with couples who are just getting ready to get married or counseling with couples who are just getting ready to get divorced, um, kind of the same three things come up. You know the three most common affairs of the heart in marriages? Priority loves of people that they love more than they love their spouse? You know, the first one is their kids. Like most marriages have at least one parent who's having an affair with their kids. Their kid is the priority love of their life. Remember the Jesus statements we talked about two weeks ago? We said, you know, in Jesus, we found someone I want to serve for the rest of my life. I want to submit to for the rest of my life. I want to sacrifice for. I found someone who together we can be better than, than we're apart. And I said, is that true of Jesus? And all of us kind of said... Eh, I, you know, I'd like it to be, but I got to think about that. We said, was well, that true of your spouse? 
found someone you want to serve the rest of your life, submit to for the rest of your life. You, you found someone that you want to sacrifice for the rest of your life. You found someone who you together are better than you apart the rest of your life. Do you feel that way about your spouse? And everybody's like, ugh. You feel that way about your kids? You know how quickly parents say, heck yeah. You have someone in your kids you're willing to serve for the rest of your life? You know how many parents say, yeah. You found someone in your kids you're willing to submit to for the rest of your life? You know how many parents say, yeah. You have someone in your kids you're willing to sacrifice for for the rest of your life? You know how many parents say, yeah. You found someone in your kids who you together are better than you apart? You know how many people so quickly say, yeah. Basically, we love our kids more than we love our spouse. We love our kids more than we love Jesus. Because they prove to be the priority love of our life. So it's not confusing then that the two highest periods for divorce are the first three years of marriage and the first three years after kids leave the house. Because all of a sudden, husband and wife are back together thinking, you know, you're not really the most important thing in my life. That person has left. Now I have to decide all over again whether I want to be with you. You know, the second most common affair of the heart in marriages is actually with our parents. I'm finding now more and more couples between the age of 55 and 65 who are struggling in their marriage because one spouse is giving all of their attention to their parents rather than to their marriage. And let me show you the transition that happens, right? First 20 years of the marriage, taking care of my kids. Then the next 20 years of my marriage, all of a sudden my parents are in their 70s or 80s, I transition to taking care of my parents. I've been counseling with people who have been married 40 plus years who are getting ready to get divorced. And we start tracing back and they basically say, first 20 years I lived for my kids, the next 20 years took care of mom and dad, got all their affairs in order, and now I just, I don't even like this person. I don't even know this person. They have become the priority love of my life. And number three would be careers. When I talk to people, they're usually not having an affair with another person. It's their kids, their parents, or their career. And your career should not compete with your marriage. It should only serve to support it. The only reason any of us have a job is to add value to society and then, and then to make money to support our marriage and our families if we're married and have families. Like, the job supports us. It doesn't compete with us. We know how to cultivate things. We know how to make sure our kids make it. We know how to make sure our parents are taken care of. We know how to make sure we are great at our job. We know how to cultivate things. We just haven't put marriage at the top of the list. The reason we haven't cultivated it is not because we don't know how. It's because it's not high enough on the list. And you know, we're learning Christian marriage doesn't just change how we treat the things that are important. It changes what's most important. We've not, in Ephesians 5, learned how to really love anything differently. We've just learned how to put marriage at the top of the list of the things that we love. In 1989, one of my favorite movies of all time came out. It's called Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner. He's a, he's a farmer in Iowa who begins to hear voices in his head that he's supposed to build a, a baseball field. If you build it, he will come. He hears this voice until he decides he's supposed to build a baseball field. So he takes his big cornfield and he, he builds a baseball field out of it. He mortgages his entire life not knowing what he's going to happen, but hearing a voice. If you build it, he will come. And as he builds a baseball field, night after night he looks, finally, you know, one player pops out of the corn and then a whole heavenly league of baseball, big leaguers, pops out of the corn. And then eventually... Kevin Costner looks around at everything that's happening. He's like, I know all of this is going good, but 
I'm still missing something because he's still hearing the voice. If you build it, he will come. And eventually, his dad pops out of the cornfield. His dad, who had put baseball ahead of him his entire life, pops out of the cornfield. And he realized that this entire push, this entire movie, is set up to allow a son to have a moment with his dad that he never got to have in life because of how busy his dad was. The pinnacle of the whole movie is when Kevin Costner... He's talking to his dad's character on the field and he grabs a glove from the bench and he says, Hey, dad, you want to have a catch? Hey, dad, you want to have a catch? And like the movie is completed as Costner's character goes out there and begins to throw the ball with his dad. It's like this son finally got to spend time with his dad that he never had before and his heart is now full because he got to have a catch with his dad. Listen, a lot of you live in my neighborhood. I see you having a catch with your kids. I see you playing soccer in the yard. I see you coming and going in your work trucks. I know how hard you're working. You know what it is that wants to have a catch in your life? Your marriage wants to have a catch. Your marriage is sitting back saying, hey, you're like, do you have time for me? Your marriage is saying, you want, like, you want to have a catch? Do you want to spend just a few moments, just you and I? What we've been learning through Ephesians chapter 5 is when our marriage is most important, we give it time to have a catch. Somewhere between 1501 and 1504, a famous artist by the name of Michelangelo created a statue, the statue of David, that's one of the most well-known statues in the world today. For those of you who are familiar with it, you're welcome that I only gave it from the waist up because that probably would have destroyed this spiritual moment that we're trying to have. And Michelangelo was asked once, when you saw that massive piece of marble, like how did you get David? Like out of that big chunk of marble, like how did you get David out of that? And Michelangelo said, the first time I saw that piece of marble, all I saw was David. I just had to remove everything else around it so everyone else could see him too. Do you realize that's how Jesus sees you? He looks at you and he sees your spiritual best. And if you're married, he's brought your spouse alongside you. So they will look at you. And when they see you, all they'll see is your spiritual best. And they'll think, my job is is to help in life.